Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. Pastor Sean has been preaching through the story of Jesus' crucifixion at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and he aims to spend three weeks on it. And I have the occasion this morning, while he is out, to step in, and I thought I would continue this theme of thinking about Jesus' bloody sacrifice, and doing so by reflecting upon some of the Old Testament pictures of atonement. We have in Leviticus the ceremonial laws that the Lord prescribed for the nation of Israel, how they were to operate and how they were to worship Him. And they covered every aspect of life, from how you dress, to how you bathe, to what you eat, even where you can go. Specifically this morning, we'll be looking at chapter 17, which deals with blood. And we sing songs all the time about the blood of Jesus, about being saved by the blood, washed by the blood, which for people that did not grow up in church, it's probably pretty weird. A little strange if you think about it, because blood in any other area of life is rarely good. If you see blood, it usually means there's been a problem and somebody was hurt. If you say a movie is full of blood and guts, you're not praising its moral qualities. If someone is bloodthirsty, you're saying they are violent and despicable, not the kind of person you want to be around. And yet this morning in our text, we'll see that the Bible paints a bigger picture through the imagery of blood, the shedding of blood, the sprinkling of blood, and blood in the proper place and used in the proper ways is a symbol of atonement, of communion, indeed of life. And therein we see a very simple picture in the the Old Testament ceremonies that was clearly pointing to some greater sacrifice, as Pastor Jamani just read in Hebrews chapter 9. A greater sacrifice and greater blood which was shed on Calvary by Jesus Christ. And So now that I've gone ahead and spoiled the plot from the beginning, let's begin by reading our text The text in Leviticus 17, the text that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, would have us to hear this morning. God says in His Word, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside of the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. 
This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, this man shall be cut off from among his people. And if any one of the house of Israel or any of the strangers who sojourn among them eats the blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we have your word, your holy word before us, and we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, to see your truth, to see more about you and your perfect holiness, to see more about ourselves and the guilt that we carry, but that we wouldn't stop there, that our eyes would be lifted up to gaze upon the perfect sacrifice and the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This chapter breaks down into five different laws about sacrifice and about animals and blood, and we're not going to cover them all this morning. But the first point for us to see is drawn from verses 1 through 9, and it is this, the danger of hidden idolatry. The danger of hidden idolatry. Verses 1 through 7 spell out what is proper regarding the the killing of an animal. Now, some commentators debate a little bit whether these laws pertain to any animal that was killed or just strictly to animals killed for sacrifice. I tend to think these rules regulated the killing of animals for sacrifice, for worship purposes, because of verse 7, which says, So they shall no more sacrifice sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. See, the, the surrounding nations had a practice of killing an animal, slaughtering it, catching the blood, pouring that blood into holes or trenches in the ground in order to appease their pagan gods and to try to protect and promote the fertility of their own flocks. And the people of God were not immune to such a temptation. And so God makes clear here that when they sacrifice an animal for worship, whether inside of the camp or outside of the camp, they were to present that animal as a sacrifice and bring the blood to the Lord at the tabernacle. That's what verse 5 says, that they were to present the sacrifice to the priest and thereby present a sacrifice as a peace offering to the Lord. Peace offerings are spelled out in chapter 3. You can read that for homework later. But what's worthy of our reflection here is the danger of not following the Lord's instructions. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. If anyone kills, anyone of this house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside of the camp and doesn't bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting and offer it as a gift to the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. The Lord says he has shed blood and he shall be cut off from among his people. Blood guilt is counted to him when he fails to worship the Lord, to sacrifice to the Lord as he should. He's guilty of idolatrous worship. He's not merely slightly missing a ceremonial mark. He's not even doing something that's a little bit ill-advised. 
He's got blood on his hands, literally and figuratively. Blood guilt means he's as guilty as if he were a murderer. That's what blood guilt means. Have you ever considered that? That when we, when we tinker with idols, when we adopt worship practices of the world, we, we bow down to other gods, little g gods, we're earning for ourselves the same kind of sinful status as a cold-blooded murderer. Idolatry and false worship is just as damnable as taking life unjustly. It's a violation of the very first commandment that God gives. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No false worship. No idols. God is jealous. He's a jealous God and he will not tolerate for his bride to be tempted away by other suitors. He cares about who we worship and how we worship him. That's part of the reason why chapter 10 in this book Spells out how Nadab and Abihu were killed in the tabernacle because they dared to tinker with the worship of God. God cares about how we worship and and especially about who we worship. And if we fail in that area, we earn blood guilt for ourselves. And you say, okay, pastor, I get it. I understand what the law says. It's a little bit strange, but I got it. But I have never, ever been tempted to slaughter a goat in my backyard and pour its blood in the ground. What does this have to do with me? Well, I doubt many of you have ever been tempted to follow goat demons, to bow down to them. But there are certainly still other gods that can tempt us to worship them today. Tempt us to worship Worldly passions and desires instead of worshiping the true Lord. So, for example, if you've ever been tempted to fudge the numbers a little bit, to to cook the books, to mess with your finances, to keep a little bit more in your pocket, then you've made a sacrifice to the God of greed, the God of mammon. Just like the man who thinks that he can secretly pour out a blood offering in his backyard to a goat god, and he thinks he's gotten away with it, you think you've gotten away with your greed. But God knows. God sees. He knows every time we've, we've skimmed off the top, we've underreported, we've failed to give to the Lord or to anyone else what was justly owed to them. Your God is not a goat, but it is the God of greed, which carries the same kind of blood guilt. Maybe your God isn't greed at all. Maybe your God is your own comfort. You're kind of like the man that can't be bothered to take his goat all the way to the tent of meeting. That's so far away. Got to drag this thing all the way up there? You figure, I'll just do it at home disregard what the Lord has clearly said I shouldn't do. I'll just worship Him the way that I want to worship Him. We pretend to be holy because we're, we're still making a sacrifice, all the while disregarding the clear commands. Many people do this in countless ways. They go through the motion. They act like good Christian folk. Maybe they come to church Maybe they tithe every so often. 
but at home, they're actually carrying the blood guilt of idolatry. Husbands can act one way in public, all the while bowing down to the idol of their own comfort and convenience at home. They don't lead their wives and their families as the Lord has commanded them. Rather than seeking to serve, they want to be served all the time. Their weakness in their leadership tends to be one extreme or the other. They're either harsh and domineering or they're totally passive and withdrawn. Either way, their God is their own comfort, and their God has their undivided worship. But God sees it, and He knows. The same temptation is true for women, for wives also. They can make their own comfort or their preferences their idol. And when anybody suffers or or, or, uh, threatens my idol... We tend to react in sinful ways. We get angry. We get agitated. Maybe we get anxious. Maybe you've told your children a thousand times, keep your room picked up. And you dared to violate my preferences my wishes, and so I will unjustly pour out my wrath upon you. Concern is not that they have sinned against the Lord, it's that they dare not do what you want them to do. Sometimes we respond with a sharp tongue or by withdrawing our affection in coldness. Whatever the the reaction is, I'm not happy, so I'm going to disregard what God's clear will is, and I'm going to take over. We try and retain the veneer of holiness, like the man sacrificing to goats in the privacy of his own field, but all that veneer does is increase my blood guilt. God sees my secret sin, my hidden idol worship, and that kind of idolatry makes me as guilty as a murderer. That's the great irony of all of this false worship. My idol worship promises that I will be happy and blessed. It actually does the opposite. It defiles us and brings us cursing. It makes us unholy and condemned. It promises life but only brings death. It's the same bait and switch that Satan uses every time. What did he promise Adam in the garden if he just took that fruit? He said, you'll be like God and you'll surely not die. You'll have everything you could ever want and no consequences. But Adam defiled himself, chose to worship the snake rather than his creator. And the blood guilt of the whole human race was upon him. And each of us is like Adam. We we know there's a God, we know that he deserves to be worshiped, and yet we choose to bow down to our pet idols greed or comfort or our lust. We bow down for our career or maybe our family, whatever, whatever our plans are, things that I really want to do. 
Whatever the idol is, I'm willing to neglect God's clearly revealed word to pursue that, then I know that I'm covered in blood guilt. That's each of us. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We may apply it this way. All have worshipped idols and all have blood guilt on their hands. We each have blood guilt on our hands that we're powerless to wash off on our own. And so what do we do when we realize, man, I really am guilty? The Bible says there's only one way to be made clean. There's only one sacrifice that can purify a conscience and cleanse a soul of blood guilt. It's not a sacrifice of a goat or a bull. It's only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. He died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one sent in order to atone for sins, to make us clean, to reconcile us to God. It was His purity sacrificed on the cross for our pollution. His faithfulness exchanged for our filthiness. And that's the good news of Scripture, is that that sacrifice... That cleansing can be yours today. You don't have to go down to a temple. You don't have to get on a plane and fly to Israel. We experience the blessings of Christ's purifying sacrifice simply by faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ. Simple faith is all that's required. There's no other sacrifice that can atone for your sins. No list of good deeds. No no acts of penance that you can do to atone for your blood guilt. Only Christ and His perfect sinless sacrifice can make you holy again. It's His blood. His blood that sprinkles upon us to make us clean, Hebrews says. So don't try and clean yourself up by just trying harder. I'm going to vow again. I'm not going to go back to that sin. I'm going to muster up my own strength. You're washed because of the sacrifice. Because of His atoning work of a spotless and white lamb sacrificed in your place. He's the peace offering that that was symbolizing reconciliation in the days of Leviticus So too, Jesus is our peace offering that brings us forever peace between a holy God and sinful men. That's what trusting in Christ means. You now have peace with God. You've been reconciled. That's what atonement means, at one meant. Your blood guilt was replaced by Christ's blood. We might say we've gone from blood guilt to blood innocence. means that God's no longer angry, vengeful towards you. His wrath has been propitiated, as we will get to. He has absorbed that wrath. There's no more vengeance aimed at you. You no longer live under the threat of being cut off from His people. Christ's sacrifice is a forever sacrifice. Once and for all, it will never fail. It means your status as a child of God is secure. When God adopts, He doesn't make a mistake. He adopts forever because the atonement is forever. Permanent reconciliation and peace received simply by faith based on the blood of a perfect substitute. That's the good news. I hope that you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, as your substitute. 
Now let's move on to the second point. The second of two. Which really continues on the same theme. It's that the only means of atonement is the blood. The only means of atonement is the blood. The next few verses detail the the major theme of this chapter again, which is blood, and it spells out a clear prohibition against eating it. Verse 10 says, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. Blood was used in all manner of pagan rituals. Like I said, they would pour out blood on the ground to appease their false gods. They would use bloods in rituals to, to connect themselves with past uh, ancestors. They, they would even use human sacrifice as part of these wicked practices. And even today, blood is used in various cultic rituals and pagan religions around the world. And what God is doing here is He is drawing a clear line around the nation of Israel to make sure that their worship looks nothing like that. That unholiness, that wickedness. And He goes further to explain the theological principle behind this prohibition against eating. Verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Even their pre-modern rudimentary understanding of the body and of physiology. They knew that without blood, something dies. You must have blood to have life. We even speak that way today. When, you, when they ask you to go donate a pint of blood, they say, donate blood and save a life. Life and blood are inextricably linked together, and this principle of life and blood being connected together is connected to other truths in Scripture. So, for example, because life is in the blood and life is sacred, to shed someone's blood is wicked. It's sinful. That's why God would talk to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, right at the very beginning of the Bible. Cain kills his brother Abel, and God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You've chosen to take life, which is sacred, and that blood guilt is screaming to me. Your wickedness is yelling at me. Further, because all mankind is made in the image of God, because God alone is the creator of the universe, God alone has the authority to take life. We don't have the innate right to shed blood and take life. God takes life, takes it every day through disease, through old age. Romans 13 tells us sometimes through the legitimate use of the sword in the hands of the state. But each of us individually has no innate authority to shed blood. And that's because for some of us, that's for us it is, that to spill someone's blood is sinful. We're despising the life that God has given to them and thereby despising the giver of that life when we choose to shed blood. Life is sacred. Life is in the blood. And so God forbids the eating of blood. No blood, never none. That's in the background 
of what Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 6. Which must have been absolutely dumbfounding. Do you remember what he said? He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Wild words to an Israelite. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Stunning words. Jesus takes a previously forbidden action, drinking blood, which brought terrible consequences and turns that image on its head. He says, in order for you to be holy, you must drink the blood. His blood. Preacher, this is getting weird. Now Jesus, as we learn, when we keep studying the New Testament, is not literally talking about the red stuff that comes out of his veins. He's talking about faith. Faith in His atoning sacrifice. The shedding of His blood. How can we do that? How can Jesus take blood, the shedding of which brought curse and brought defilement, and turn it into an image of faith in the new covenant? Part of the answer to that is in the book of Leviticus. It's because we learn in Leviticus that blood poured out in the proper place symbolizes atonement. When it's shed in the wrong place, it brings death, but in the right place, it brings atonement. The same blood. Look at verse 11 again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood shed outside of the tabernacle brings death and defilement. But blood sprinkled in the tabernacle, sprinkled on the altar, brings atonement, brings purity. It shows substitution. And remember, where was this blood sprinkled specifically? In the tabernacle? Well, in the very preceding chapter, we have it sprinkled in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. On the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the Mercy Seat. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 is a wonderful chapter, in part because it has the worst news and the best news all together. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. We all have blood guilt. We all need atonement. We all have been estranged from God. We all have earned the sentence of being cut off from God's holy people. Death. But, verse 24... Even though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, can be justified 
by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation there in verse 25, that's important. That's a big theological word. It means the appeasement of wrath. It means God's holy and white-hot wrath of justice has been absorbed and appeased. And the Greek word that he uses for propitiation there is the word for the place of propitiation. It's for the mercy seat. That's what that word means. He's saying Jesus Himself and His blood sacrifice has become our mercy seat. He's the seat of substitution, of purification, of atonement. And just like God gave the sacrifices to the nation of Israel to show them what atonement looks like through pictures and shadows, Christ has been given to us as a gift of grace to all who would believe. He's become the atoning sacrifice and has done so with blood of such purity that sacrifice never needs to be done again. Why does the Bible talk about blood so much? Why is blood such an important theme? Why do Christians sing about blood? It's because blood is at the heart of the atonement. It's at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the message of how sinners are made right with a holy God. All of that requires blood. Someone's life in exchange for yours, somebody else taking the death that that you owed. Without those things, without, without blood, you have no gospel. Without blood, you have no Christianity. And so I'll close by asking you this. Have you been sprinkled clean? By the blood of Christ. That is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Because if you haven't, then you are like those condemned in this passage in Leviticus. But you won't merely be cut off from people in Israel. Cut off from the people of God. You will be cut off from the blessed presence of God for all of eternity. And consigned to eternal punishment in hell. That's where God sends all who refuse to be sprinkled clean by the Son. And so don't reject the message of the gospel. Don't don't cling to your little idols. None of them can save you from the judgment of God to come. Don't reject the atonement on the mercy seat that has been offered for you. Trust in Christ and you can be made clean before God today. And for believers... Let me encourage you with a simple reflection about the preciousness of Christ's blood. Peter says in 1 Peter that we should be holy as God is holy, knowing that we were ransomed from our futile ways, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Christ's blood is the price of our redemption, and it is so precious. Because it does something that, blood, that, that silver and gold could never do. It cleanses us. It makes us holy. We've been sprinkled with it. So let's keep ourselves holy also. Unstained by the things of this world. One of the ways that God has given to us to help us fight for this holiness 
is to reflect on a, in a tangible way on the blood of Christ. Christ instituted a new covenant, a covenant in His blood, He said. And so by partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're called to remember His sacrifice, His blood that was shed, His atoning death in the cro- on the cross for our place. And so as we consider the table, this is for people who have trusted in Christ and obeyed Him in baptism. If that's you, if you're like the believers described in Acts chapter 2, devoted to the, the teaching of God's Word and to fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer, then we invite you to join us at the Lord's table. Be encouraged again by reflecting upon the blood that was shed so that you can be sprinkled clean. But if you're not trusting in Christ, then be warned that Scripture forbids you to join us. First, trust in Christ, be reconciled to Him, then you may join us at the table. As is our occasional practice, we will look at our church covenant and read it together. So if you will grab a hymnal 